0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau.
1: I'm Adam Forrestine, coming to you from a coronavirus self-quarantine in Cambridge, Mass.
2: And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's Outpost in the San Francisco Bay Area.
1: It is Thursday, March 12th, and this week we're going
0: to bring you a special show highlighting voices from people in places around the world that are being hit hard by the coronavirus pandemic.
1: First, we'll check in with STAT's lead coronavirus reporter, that's our colleague Helen Branswell, for an update on how this outbreak is spreading and what we can expect.
2: Next, we'll talk to an executive with a business consultancy who lives in Milan, Italy, about what life is like right now in his country.
0: Then we'll talk to a New York University physician who, like clinicians around the world, is preparing for the possibility of a flood of cases in her hospital.
1: And finally, we'll talk with a Florida woman who was trapped with her husband on the Diamond Princess cruise ship and subsequently quarantined.
2: But before we get to this week's podcast stuff, Damien, Adam, and I humbly ask that you consider subscribing to STAT+. Plus.
1: We do. And so at
0: a time when STAT is making all of its coverage of the coronavirus crisis free, we appreciate the support for our subscription business.
1: Just this week even, StatPlus put out a really fascinating and important health tech investigation. Stat reporters Aaron Broadwin and Casey Ross contacted nearly 50 hospital systems in states across the United States, including many of the nation's top academic medical centers, to assess the extent and nature of arrangements between hospitals and the big tech companies offering cloud storage and analysis.
2: Yeah. And by doing that, Aaron and Casey concluded that the privacy protections in these deals are, are really uneven and that patients are being left in the dark when it comes to how their data is being handled. It was a great story.
0: So if you'd like to read that and a great many other things, you can subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, you can get 10% off of your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. That is 10% off of your first year with the code P-O-D. Before we talk to some of the people who've been affected by the coronavirus outbreak, we're going to get an update from Stats' Helen Branswell, who has been tirelessly covering this pandemic for months. Helen, thanks for coming back on the show.
2: Thanks for having me. So on Wednesday, the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus outbreak a global pandemic. Helen, what does that mean in practical terms?
3: Well, actually, I have to stop you and say they reached out to me to tell me that they hadn't declared it in the way that they sometimes declare things like a public health emergency of global uh, international concern. They're acknowledging that this is a pandemic. Um, and, and in an effect, it doesn't really change very much. You know, the public may pay more attention now, uh, but it does not trigger any kind of mandatory response. It's, it's not the firing of a gun, if you will. It's just effectively them saying it looks like it's going to continue to spread and spread pretty much around the world.
1: So there's been a lot of debate uh, among experts about how bad this is going to get. You know, what kind of range of case numbers and death tolls are you hearing, Helen?
3: Numbers change rapidly and are going to become increasingly less useful, other than sort of to give people a sense of where it is and where concentrations of cases might be. Currently, um, there are about 120,000 people around the world in somewhere near 118 countries that have been confirmed. There are likely lots more, but that's what the number is so far. How... Bad it is, is still an open question. It's bad. I, I was listening yesterday to a presentation on the coronavirus uh, that was made at CROI, the big antiviral conference that typically is held every second year in Boston. This year it's being held online because they wouldn't bring people in. And uh, somebody from the CDC said that their best guess at this point or the best estimate of the fatality rate of this from this infection is between 0.5 percent and 3.5 percent. To give you some context, seasonal flu is about 0.1 percent. So as the man said, it's between five times and 35 times worse than seasonal flu. That's their guess at this point.
0: So countries, including China and South Korea, seem to have succeeded in flattening the curve of disease spread with their containment measures. Is that something we can replicate in the U.S., or might it already be too late?
3: Well, it's really hard to know at what stage the outbreak is in this country because there's been so little testing that really the, the country has been flying blind. I mean, people know there's a big outbreak in Seattle. People know that there's an outbreak in Northern California. People know that the virus is now in uh, spreading in parts of New York, or greater New York City. Uh, but beyond that, it's, you know, you hear about individual cases, but you don't know if that's just the start of something or if there's something bigger going on there. Um, in terms of replicating what China. And South Korea have done. Uh, I mean, there's certainly probably things that they're they've done that could be done here, but you know, the United States is a big country with lots of jurisdictions, and many of the kinds of measures that would be taken are done at a state and local level. So there's not likely going to be sort of a homogenous across the country approach to trying to control this. And that could undermine how effective measures are. So we've
2: also seen a lot of conversation about how this outbreak might ultimately end. Is it possible it'll melt away with the summer as some people have proposed? Or should we be prepared for a lengthy
3: pandemic? Well, wow, it would be lovely if it dropped off in the summer. And but it's impossible to know at this point, you know, um, Typically, respiratory viruses, the viruses that cause colds and the flu, do uh, subside during the summer months. You know, it's quite rare in, the, in um, temperate climates to have, like, summer colds. So people are hoping that perhaps this one will act that way. But it's important to know that during flu pandemics, which are outbreaks that occur with a new virus to which nobody has um, immunity, Pandemics often happen in off-seasons. The virus will start to spread during the summer months or continue spreading during the summer months. And the thinking is that they're able to do that because there are just so many people who are susceptible that the seasonality aspect doesn't kick in. That could be the case with this virus. We really don't know. As to uh, how it will end, um, what the WHO hopes is that countries will... Try to control it and contain it and stop transmission. And then maybe the virus will, you know, effectively stop transmitting in people. Uh, But so far, it's not clear that enough countries are going to be able to do that and have the resources to do that. If it continues to spread, then you would think that what would happen would be it would spread until it's effectively uh, infected a lot of people and people have some immunity to it. And then whether it comes back again, uh, you know, year after year or once every few years, we'll have to wait to find those answers.
0: Well, Helen, thanks for updating us and, and thanks again for your coverage.
3: Nice to talk to you guys.
1: Now we're going to take you to the outbreak in Italy. As we record this podcast, there have been more than 10,000 cases of COVID-19 reported in Italy with uh, about 800 plus deaths. Uh, That number, unfortunately, changes almost by the hour.
2: Outside of China, no country has been affected more by the coronavirus outbreak than Italy. That's particularly true in the northern part of the country, where the virus first took hold. It has overwhelmed the health system there, and it's compelled the government to put the entire region into a lockdown. The restrictions on movement and public gatherings have now been extended across all of Italy.
0: Joining us today to help better understand the impact of the outbreak on life in Italy is Giovanni Fontanini, Giovanni is 39 and an executive with a business consultancy who lives in Milan, which is the financial and fashion capital in Italy's northern Lombardy region.
1: Giovanni, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you during this difficult time.
4: Thank you. Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure.
2: So to start, tell us how you're feeling. We know you have family also living in the north of Italy. How are they doing?
4: Well, uh, actually, they're they're doing well now uh, so far, let me say. I live more or less... uh, 50, 50, 60 miles from them. They they they're working. They're running a company which now is uh, still uh, up and running right now, and uh, so uh, they're trying to keep up the life uh, as uh, as everything was uh, going normal. But it it is not going normal actually. I I, I live in Milan, and uh, actually the the situation is a little bit strange. Meaning I, I there's no no people at all in the streets, parking areas are totally, uh, totally free, uh, the traffic is absolutely unreal, and uh, so the life is very, very different, let me say, from uh, how I'm used to this, uh, in this situation.
1: Giovanni, you know, you mentioned the fact that uh, the streets of Milan, you know, which, which is normally a very vibrant city, are you know are empty. Uh, people aren't traveling out. W- what is the mood of people in Milan, you know, in Lomb- Lombardy these days? H- how are they sort of responding to this
4: to this epidemic? Um, I would say two different moods. Uh, the uh, the young people, I, I think that the young people is just now understanding the level of, the, the level of gravity of, of this situation because the media and uh, actually the, the actions taken by the government are so strong and the, the overall situation is so unreal that in this moment also young people is understanding. The old people is very worried. The very problem is uh, the uh, capacity of uh, uh, of our hospitals. Uh, Consider that uh, in Italy we have more or less uh, uh, 5,000 IC uh, IC units. We are using more or less 1,000 of these uh, units just to recover people uh, infected by coronavirus. So more or less 20% of this, uh, uh, of our capacity.
2: Giovanni, do you have any advice for Americans who are now dealing with the same outbreak?
4: I think that starting from the very early to activate restrictions, uh, home, uh, home isolation is uh, absolutely key to, to reduce uh, the spreading of the virus.
1: Well, Giovanni, thank you so much for your time. Uh, stay healthy and, and best of luck to you and your family. Thanks a lot. Now we're going to take you to a hospital in New York City where clinicians are scrambling to prepare for the possibility that they could see an influx of cases.
0: So New York Governor Andrew Cuomo announced on Wednesday that the state had confirmed 212 cases, 48 of which are in New York City itself. A growth in cases, which seems more than likely, could quickly overwhelm the already busy hospitals there, just like in communities all over the world.
2: Joining us today to share a physician's perspective on the situation is Purvi Parikh. She's an immunologist at New York University's Langone
0: Medical Center in New York City.
1: Uh, Purvi, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks for having me. So for starters, can you tell us a little bit about what things are like right now at your hospital?
5: So luckily, um, at our health system, we haven't had too many cases. We're getting updates multiple times per day. We've actually had a travel ban placed on all of our physicians and nurses that were not allowed to go anywhere for 60 days. Protocols have been placed in terms of what to do for testing of uh, people that we suspect that may have the COVID-19 virus. I mean, we're mostly in preparation mode so far. Luckily, we haven't had too many critically ill patients with COVID-19 specifically. Now, it is flu season, so we have already the normal packed floors and, you know, know, critical care units that we would at any given time. And what have you been hearing from
2: other physician colleagues in New York City? What's the mood like in the local clinician community right now?
5: I think it's it's a mixed bag. So there's obviously concern uh, as we hear about what's going on from some of our colleagues around the world. There's this anxiety around getting everything prepared, making sure things are contained, But at the same time, we are also getting reports that much of the population is spared or if they do get the illness. We've heard from the WHO that 70 percent have made a full recovery. It's not all gloom and doom. We know that our children so far are not getting as sick. Right now, we're most concerned for those high-risk groups and protecting them. Elderly, those with lung disease, heart disease, diabetes, etc. So
1: uh, the availability of tests for the novel coronavirus has been been a major stumbling block around the United States. Has that been a problem at Langone?
5: Not only at Langone, but just anecdotally at other hospitals as well, I've heard from my colleagues that they're unable to test at random. They are keeping that for high priority cases. Even some people who they have high suspicion of wanting to test, they were having difficulty obtaining the test because there were not enough. I'm hoping that situation will turn around. But yes, we are not currently, you know, testing everyone.
0: So it seems like a major part of the issue in Italy as well as elsewhere is that. Healthcare systems simply got overwhelmed by the number of people needing testing or needing treatment. Is New York City prepared for what the outbreak seems likely to bring?
5: So I'm hoping. So I'm hoping that we're learning from Italy and we're trying to be more aggressive with our containment measures. Um, so as you noticed, you know, every big festival has been canceled. Um, even for us as physicians, all of our major medical conferences for the next two three months are all canceled. Um, we're trying to limit, um, you know, or, or do social distancing as much as possible. Most companies I know in New York City were working for. home is a capability. Um, Those companies have already instructed their employees to start working from home. Colleges and universities are moving online. So I'm hoping by just taking these simple measures, we won't end up in that overwhelming situation. But unfortunately, you know, with, with this type of thing, it's hard to predict the future.
2: Public health officials believe a disproportionate number of cases stemmed from a single infected person who attended an event in Westchester County, just outside the city. What does that tell us about the safety of attending large events amid the outbreak?
5: Yeah, that's the big thing that we as uh, Americans need to learn, which we can learn from what went wrong in Italy. So it is a very contagious virus. So that's why attending these large events, it can spread very quickly within, you know, three to six feet of contact from person to person. In most events, that's the case. And the fact that it spread so rapidly through Westchester is even prime example of that. I think it is the right move right now that we are limiting large social gatherings. And
1: finally, what are you telling your patients when they express anxiety about the virus?
5: I'm, I'm trying to give them all facts and tell them the best thing you can do is common sense measures. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Don't um, take any unnecessary trips or travel right now. Avoid large gatherings. And then I do have a group that's high risk and low risk. So those that are higher risk, I'm telling them to be more aggressive with these measures, uh, giving different advice to my younger, healthier population. And the young, people, I am telling them you don't have to be as worrisome that you'll get a s- severe form of it, but you have to be careful that you're not passing it on to our elderly population. It's a fine line of reassuring people, but still having them not take it completely lightly.
0: Poorvi, thanks for coming on The Read Out
5: Loud. Thanks for having me.
1: Next, we're going to take you to one of the cruise ships affected by an outbreak.
0: So Phil and Gay Quarter were two of the more than 3,000 people who were trapped on the Diamond Princess cruise ship in Japan and subsequently quarantined. They're joining us from their home in Florida, where they returned safely earlier this month. Phil and Gay, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks. So let's start from the beginning. How did you find out that the ship you were on had been exposed to the novel coronavirus?
6: We were first informed that a gentleman from Hong Kong had been on the ship, and when we got to Hong Kong, he actually got off and did not return to the ship. And a few days later, health authorities reported to the ship that this man had tested positive for what was then called coronavirus. But nobody on the ship got particularly alarmed about it, and... Nothing changed in terms of the schedule and parties and theater events. So, unfortunately, we were allowed to mingle for several days. And so,
0: how did it come about that the actual quarantine was instituted?
6: We were due to arrive back in Yokohama for the end of the cruise, and the captain got on the loudspeaker Uh, the night before we were supposed to arrive in the morning and said they were speeding up the boat to get to Yokohama sooner because the Japanese health authorities wanted to board. And the next announcement was that these quarantine authorities were aboard, and they were going to go room to room through the night. And if we had a knock on the door to please open it and allow them to take our temperatures. The next morning, the captain woke us again and said, we only got through temperatures for about half the ship. So unfortunately, you can't disembark off the ship today. You're stuck here for another 24 hours while they finish these tests. So we were on for another 24 hours. The next morning, the captain woke us and said, I'm very sorry to tell you, you're now in quarantine for 14 days. So
1: what were things like on the ship during that quarantine uh, period? Uh, you know, I mean, were you were you aware of that other people were sick? I mean, what what sort of contact did you have with other people on the ship?
6: Well, first of all, quarantine meant you stay in your cabins no matter what, except if you had a balcony like we did, which was very fortunate because our balcony overlooked the port area. It was like waking up in a B-movie. You looked off the balcony and saw men in different color hazmat suits running around, ambulances backing up to the gangway, people holding up curtains so nobody could tell what kind of bodies were coming out. We didn't even know if they were live or dead in the ambulances at that point. It was a very upsetting and scary scene.
0: And so that whole time you were on the ship, there was some debate among U.S. officials as to whether they should bring patients home or or wait out of quarantine there in Japan. Were you able to follow that the news from the ship?
6: We had very, very good social media access. So we were getting 90% of our news from the media. Right away, we learned there was a big dispute and the Japanese Minister of Health did not want any of us getting off the ship, including a thousand Japanese citizens and tainting Tokyo area and, and going out into public.
1: So okay, you, you and your husband uh, were among about 300 Americans. Uh, evacuated from the ship and flown to Texas on February 17th. What was uh, what was that process like for you?
6: We were in a panic about it and begging the government to come for us. However, when they finally said they would come and extract us, we knew that was going to be a better situation and they did say we would only be traveling with those people who were testing negative. That turned out not to be true, by the way. We drove to the airport on buses. The airport, Haneda, was only about 45 minutes from the port of Yokohama. But we sat on those buses over three hours, and we had no idea what was going on. We found out the next day that while the buses were moving, the Japanese... Health authorities reported that another 14 people in our group had tested positive. After three hours, I'm in line for the porta potty and a gentleman in a hazmat suit comes up to another woman And says, are you Mrs. So-and-so? And And he says, I'm sorry, but your test has just come back and you're positive and you have to go into this Mylar tent isolation room. And, you know, she's shaking and crying. And I'm thinking, wow, I've spent two weeks, you know, trying to stay safe. And here's somebody who's positive right in front of me.
0: So you obviously served out the quarantine uh, in Texas and both of you tested negative, thankfully. So you finally got home to Florida last week. What's, What's the first thing you did after walking in the door?
6: Well, the most important thing was to greet our puppy. (laughs) And it felt very surreal. I I actually physically was very shaky, rocky, didn't realize quite how much of a toll it had taken. And the reality is that we were imprisoned. I mean, we in Texas, we had federal orders said we had to stay there or go to jail. There was a fence up and on the other side of the fence were armed federal marshals, which is kind of funny because we're really a bunch of old boomers. We're not about to bust out of there. I never got over the feeling that I was locked up for a crime I didn't commit.
1: So I wonder, um, now you're back and you've had time to reflect on this, and you've also seen uh, the, the epidemic, now a pandemic, uh, you know, spread across the globe here in the United States. What's your current view of, kind of, of the situation and, and the steps that are being taken to mitigate it?
6: I've always been somebody who has studied epidemics and weird diseases, and I've written about them. So this whole thing seems unreal to me. I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind about the fact that not only is this pandemic taking place, but I'm in the middle of it.
0: Well, Gay, thank you for joining us and sharing your story. And and we're glad you got home safely.
6: Yes, we are too. I'm not venturing out very much. I'll tell you that.
1: And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud.
2: Thank you
0: to Alex Hogan, who produced this week's episode.
1: Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer.
4: And
0: as always, we'd love to hear from you. If you have a story to share or a viewpoint to relay about how the coronavirus is affecting this country, any country, or your life in person, you can do that by sending us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com.
2: And if you like what we do, leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts.
1: Remember to wash your hands, don't touch your face, and we'll see you next week.